There was a, a few other prophetic words that came as well, and I was looking for a gap to be able to share them because God was definitely speaking, bringing scriptures and pictures. But hopefully, as we speak, we'll uh, we'll have those things intertwined, and and God will confirm His word. Um, just a theological point of view. When can you come and stand here for a moment, please? Just because he was up on stage. This is not the doctrine of the church. This is not the way. <laughs> you know the old joke, right? Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way. And they said, no way. And he said, Yahweh. Uh, if you laugh, they just keep coming, eh? So, um, I did welcome visitors earlier, but there's somebody I do want to welcome specially. Not because he's more special than anybody else, but he's a good friend. Rick from California, from Heritage. Why don't you come and say hi? So we've been talking about 412 partnership of churches. We've been talking about the churches in California. Pray for them. Pray for what God's doing in and through them. And we, we warned you, guys might be coming visiting. Well, guess what? So why don't you come and say hi and introduce yourself? Yeah. Well, good evening. And, and thank you for uh, you know, allowing us to come here. And we know that we're getting a lot of your prayers and we appreciate that. Um, as we try to navigate through our journey to get, you know, with uh, 412, and so we continue to ask you to pray, and, and um, you know, today, this time while I'm here, I'm just, I'm seeing all the different congregations and watching how, you know, the elders work and, and just the way that God works through you guys so that um, when I go back home, um, I can have a report that says, yeah, we're on the right, ca- we're on the right track. Yeah, so thank you for your prayers. Thanks, Rick. And I do want to say, because uh, he was in Melt Boss this morning, so don't be too disappointed, because, you know, after Melt Boss, you know, it's all... <laughs> one church, one church, one church, many... one church. So, so tonight isn't going to be one of my fanciest, uh, technical, well-put-together preachers, um, <laughs> uh, I, I discovered I was preaching at about uh, 11.30 last night and uh, so I was just seeking God and just feeling what he wanted to say to you and this is, more, this is more a word from the Lord that I feel is a prophetic word for us as a congregation rather than is a good teaching so you'd rather, even if it's a bit messy you'd rather hear what God says than what Mike says, right? Okay, cool and uh, certainly some of the prophetic words that were coming through, um, Kim's word about when you're in that storm and the waves are, are getting high and the wind's blowing, what are you going to hold on to? And then um, word about it's time to reactivate our faith. And what I found interesting about that it wasn't it's time to activate our faith, it was time to reactivate. And for many of us to be reminded of the things God has done in us and through us. And to fix our eyes again on him who has brought us this far. 
Um, there were other words as well about uh, the young boy with the, the loaves and the fishes. And it's so easy when you're that young boy to go, yeah, but what's the point? So many people, so little food. And if I was to give my preacher title tonight, I would entitle it, What If? Two small words that can either be the greatest obstacle in your life or the greatest blessing. What if? And many of us live in a perpetual state of what if, what if. And often it's linked to fear. It's, it's linked to what, what if something bad happens? What if, what if I fail? What if, what if? And uh, I probably won't read it all, but there's, there's a poem that kind of sums this up and sums this attitude up. And we'll see how much of it we read. And the poem is called Worry. And it says, No burglars came again last night, just as they failed to come the night before. And for all the nights I can remember, no burglars yet again, although I listened, as I always do for them. Once more they did not oil and ease the rusty bolt gate, bolt that holds the garden gate behind the shed, beside the house. Nor did I hear them moving in the yard at some heart-sobbing wretched hour. It was the ticking of a clock upon my wall that sounded like the pad of evil steps a hundred feet away. They did not creep inside, their blind from birth brutality, reduced to some whispers. They did not stand above me, were not there with threats and ugly promises, intoxicated by the scent of fear incontinent. Nor did they then with weapons that I meekly placed into their hands proceed to sever from my children's sides the screaming child who has averted birth for so long now. They did not come. They were not there again last night. And what if they should never come? Such a waste of nights. I might have slept. But if I had, I feel quite sure they would have come. Those burglars, oh yes, they would have come. And there's this sense, as illogical as it seems, that a fear can grab a hold of us and it can dictate how we live night after night after night. Even when that fear has not materialized, it still holds us in bondage, especially with the absolute certainty that the moment we stop worrying about it, it is going to happen. And we're so worried about the enemy. We're so, you know, like, Satan is going to do, Satan doesn't have to do anything to you as long as he's got you bound in fear. It only has to be the threat of something, not the something that will keep you hidden, will keep you awake, will keep you paralyzed. The devil is a roaring lion seeking who may, he may devour. And we've, we've said this often, but lions generally do not roar when they hunt. Right? When they hunt, they're quiet. I don't know how that, that is because they tell me that it's the lionesses that do most of the hunting. I don't know how those two things go together. <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble tonight. Huh? <laughs> but lions are quiet. They want to attack their prey unaware. And the sentence is the same. He'd rather attack us unaware. 
And Paul writes, I don't want you to be unaware of the devil's schemes. But then there are moments where a lion will roar at at the prey. And when he roars at the prey, that's when the prey has got itself, say, into behind a rock or somewhere, and the lion can't get at it. And the prey is safe from the lion. And the lion knows the only way I can get at the prey is to panic it. Use fear to get it to run out of its place of safety, and then I can devour it. And there's a picture there that that we've got to be aware of his schemes because he would like to sneak up on you unaware. But if he can't sneak up on you unaware, he will try and demonstrate something to put you in such fear that you leave your safe place and become easy prey. The psalmist, one of the psalmists in Psalm 121, he wrote this, this psalm, this poem, and it was designed to be read, and it was, it was written within the context of traveling to Jerusalem. You know, a good Jew had to travel to Jerusalem several times a year for the festivals. And uh, in those days, they, uh, they didn't have Uber. Maybe we're going back to these days with the prices of petrol going as they are. But they had to walk. And uh, they would be walking towards Jerusalem and of course, they're going with, um, they're going with uh, sacrifices, they're going with money to offer, they're going with their tithes. So there was some wealth within that group as they were going to Jerusalem, which meant they were a good target for robbers and bandits on the way. And so these people walking, and they're walking in groups, because as the old African proverb says, alone I can go faster, but together we go further. Yeah, so they're going in a group because it's a lot slower going in a group. It's a lot more frustrating, isn't it? Have you ever tried going on a hike with a group? How many of you finished a hike with a group without a desire to hit at least one person? (laughs) And there's always one person going too fast, one person going too slow, one person complaining they need the toilet at an inconvenient time, one person whose bag is too heavy, one person who says that that they've hurt the leg, one person, yeah, whatever. So within a group, it's awkward. But when you're traveling in a dangerous area, it's good to be in a group because there's safety. You're more likely to make it to your destination. And so he's, he's, he's walking with this group. And as he's walking along the valley, he looks up and there's hills on either side. And he says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? In other words, I'm looking at these hills and I'm wondering what's going to come down out of these hills. Is a lion going to come? Bandits? And I'm imagining all the problems, all the enemies, all the difficulties. I'm walking with what if? What if somebody attacks us? What if somebody's hiding behind that rock? What if? Can you imagine you're walking uh, the length of Israel with money in your pockets? And every rock, you're wondering, what if, what if, what if? That would have been a really difficult journey, right? Really stressful journey. Because every step of the way, you're asking, what if something goes wrong? What if we get attacked? What if? And so his first thought is, as I look to the hills, I ask, where does my strength come from? Who's going to save us if we get attacked? And then immediately... Brings the answer. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. 
Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and evermore. And so he's walking and he's going, I can live in fear of the peril that may appear at any time. The danger that could just appear at any moment. And I can live in fear with my excellent imagination. And our imaginations are God-given, but Satan loves to use them when they're not under our control and under the control of the Lord. A God-given imagination is fantastic, but when it goes unchecked into those dark places, what will happen? What will happen? What will happen? And particularly in a, in a country like South Africa where all of us can tell a horror story, Right? All of us know somebody who. And so we, we lock ourselves behind our walls, behind our, behind our doors. And when we go out, we're vigilant. Now this isn't a message about being stupid. But it is a message about why should we live in fear? Why should we always live in the what if, what if? What if something goes wrong? What if something bad happens? And that what if paralyzes us. We become the rabbits in the headlights and it stops us actually walking in the things of God. What if I pray for this sick person and they don't get healed? What if I share the gospel with this friend and they think I'm a lunatic and never speak to me again? Actually, I've just thought of a good strategy for those people who annoy me on long hikes. Just preach the gospel to them so that, you know. What if? What if? What if I open my heart to this person and they betray me? What if I provide finances to that family that are in need and they're wasted on stupid things? What if I lend my car out and my friend crashes it? What if? What if I, I, I let somebody babysit my kids and they hurt my kids? It's like, where does it stop? Where does the what if stop? And the answer is it doesn't because the more we feed it, the bigger it gets. And the writer of this psalm is saying, look, I've got to have trust in God. That God is able to deliver me from anything. My God is bigger. My God is stronger. He, he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't fall asleep. Now you may think that means then that that's cool. Because if we trust God, no bad things are going to happen to us. And that's not what scripture tells us. In fact, Matthew 6 is a very interesting passage of scripture. There's, there's so much in Matthew 6. I could probably do a five-year series just on Matthew 6. But let's just have a look from um, verse 25. It says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. 
Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They, don't know, uh, uh, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, they're not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you or you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that an interesting end, end sentence to this preach about don't worry? Jesus says, don't worry about what you'll eat. God will provide. Don't worry about what you will wear. God will provide. Don't worry because it's not going to change anything. And besides, tomorrow has got enough worries of its own. There's enough trouble tomorrow. Jesus isn't saying, don't worry, everything's going to be all right. Every little thing is going to be all right. That, Jesus didn't write that. That's not scriptural. Don't worry about a thing. That could be a worship song, couldn't it? Kind of. But he's saying this. You will face trials of many kinds. And you don't know what you're going to face tomorrow. But worrying about it isn't going to change it. But even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of troubles, he's saying, hold on to him. Hold on to that plank. Hold on to the cross. Not come to me and your life will be amazing uh, and trouble free. Come to me and your life will be amazing because in the midst of troubles, you'll have something to hold on to. But we go through life often. What if? What if? What if? What if I lose everything tomorrow? Here's a question. What if you lose everything tomorrow? Is it possible? It's possible. What's my heart going to be if I lose everything tomorrow? Though you slay me, still I will serve you. And it's interesting, Job is a a wonderful role model for us in some ways. Because he went through probably worse than most of us have gone through, right? And he wrestles with God. But in Job 3 at the beginning, he says something really interesting. He says in, in Job chapter 3 verse 25, What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. So he spent his time worrying about what was going to happen, and it happened. Now, I'm not into this, like, kind of um, karma thing. 
My dogma will run over your karma. Or your karma will run over my... I don't know. My, my dogma will chase your karma. <laughs> you know, karma says you get what you deserve. The gospel says Jesus got what you deserved. So it's not... But there is... So I don't believe in this thing, you know, this principle. If you, if you think positive thoughts, positive things will happen to you. And if you think... That's not the gospel. It really isn't. But there is something of a principle. Here, Job, what he's obsessed about and what he's most fearful of happens to him. Why? Not because of the laws of attraction, but I think God looks at him and goes, there's something you need to fear more than that, Job. Actually, your fear of that actually tells me you don't fear me. And so all of this stuff happens to him. And Job says, why me? And God doesn't answer him. God says, who are you to ask me? And then at the end of Job, he says something really incredible. He's repenting before God and he says, I have spoken of things too wonderful for me to know. Now put that in context. What has he been speaking of? He's been speaking of, why have my kids died? Why have I lost all my wealth? Why, is it, why, have I, why am I full of boils? Why am I in agony? Why am I suffering? Why have I got these friends who are just talking garbage to me and telling me it's all my fault? Why have I got a wife who's saying, curse God and die? Why is this all happening to me? And he's talking about his circumstances. And then suddenly when he gets a realization of how big God is, and he goes, I have spoken of things too wonderful for me to know. At one point, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And then in the end, he will stand upon the earth. He goes, despite my circumstances, I know God. And there must be something at work too wonderful for me to comprehend. When you're going through trials and difficulties and, and tough, tough seasons and, all of the, and you're suffering and you say, God, why me? And he's not giving you an answer. The reason often he's not giving you an answer is it's too wonderful for you to know. Yeah, I don't get it either. Because <laughs> it's too wonderful for me to know. But we get glimpses. We get glimpses in Scripture. That suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. We understand that in our suffering and in our, in, in our pain, God is at work to produce something that is far more valuable than anything we could lose in this life. Which is why when I used to run a Year of Your Life course, we had a little expression that, how long is it ago you did Year of Your Life? What did we say about pain? Pain is a good thing. Pain is a good thing! <laughs> <laughs> it's not pleasant I rejoice in my suffering I, I, not, I don't rejoice because I'm suffering thank you Jesus that I'm suffering no thank you Jesus that in the midst of my suffering you are still sovereign thank you that you can you have a plan and a purpose that you can turn this suffering around what if and that takes us to the other side. We can, add, we can ask that question, what if, what if, what if, you know, what if, what if I get robbed? What if I get sick? You know, when you get to my age with the grey beard, these questions, 
take on a whole new dimension than when you're 20. When you're 20, you think you're immortal. Just over a year ago, I was laying in a hospital bed with tubes and breathers and the doctor phoning my wife saying he might not make it with COVID. Twice I nearly died. Stay away from the light. Stay away from the light. (laughs) And then it becomes a very real question. And I start looking at my age and go, how many years do I have left? I realize now, I've probably still got, hopefully, I've got a lot, I've got many years left. But suddenly you realize the number of years is not inexhaustible. What, what if? What if? I was, I was laying in that hospital bed. What if I die now? What about my kids? What about my wife? What's going to happen to them? We ask, we're tempted to ask these questions and I go, but what if? What if God? What if God breaks through into my circumstance? What if I'm obedient to him in this? What if I accept my circumstance with grace? What if I dare speak to that friend about the gospel? Yeah, they may reject me. They may hate me. They may think I'm stupid, but what if they respond to the gospel? What if... I pray for that sick person and they don't get healed and they get all offended. Yeah, but what if I pray for that sick person and God heals them? What if I respond to God and give money to somebody and it's a big sacrifice for me because I've got no money at the moment and then they go and waste it? Well, what if? What if God sees your heart and rewards you? What if I open my heart to somebody and they rip it out and stomp on it and chop it into a thousand pieces? Well, it happened to Jesus. What if that happens and I just become more like Jesus in the process and I learn to love like he does? What if I step out in faith And God actually shows up. What if? Imagine that. What would it look like in your life? Because we can have this big theology, right? And we can all agree. Amen, preacher brother. Hallelujah, glory. White handkerchief. I'm not talking about some abstract theology. I'm talking about how God wants to interact with you tonight. And you tomorrow, and you next week, and you in the midst of your difficulties, and you when you're clinging on. And I've been there where you've been clinging on and you've got no hope, and all the best you can do is not is just kind of try and still have hope. I've been there. But what if in your life? What does that what if look like for you? What if I trust God? With my finances. Like really trust God with my finances. What if I trust God with my kids? Because here's a scary truth. 
You can be the best, most protective parent in the world. You cannot guarantee the protection and safety of your kids. And even if you could lock them away in a castle away from every individual in the world and every form of technology so that they would never be polluted by anybody, you might not be able to protect them from sickness. You are powerless to control your destiny. You are powerless to control your future. And isn't that a relief? So it's quite liberating when we truly understand that. I am powerless. I am the boy with five loaves and two fish trying to feed 5,000. I am spitting into the wind. There is not, I am insignificant. I am a creature of the dust. I am completely powerless. For some of us, we, we, we're struggling with addictions. I'm powerless against my own addiction. Well, that's a good place to start. But what if? What if you trusted God in that situation? What if God actually is real? What if God is actually as powerful as he says? What if God actually does love you as much as he says he does? And there's this strange phenomena in churches that I've seen so often of Christians who are absolutely convinced of the doctrine of God's love for everybody else. Absolutely convinced of the doctrine of grace except for me. Yeah, I understand Jesus died for the sins of the world, but not my sins. What if? What if his death was sufficient for you? What if these extravagant claims are actually true? What if he actually decided he wants to use you to change the world? What if he put you in this terrible circumstance that you can't see your way out of because he loves you so much? When Paul was afflicted with a thorn in the flesh, three times he prayed, God, take this thing away from me. And God said, no, my grace, my undeserved favor is sufficient for you. I love you so much I gave you a thorn in the flesh. What if your circumstance is an expression of God's love? What if, instead of removing the circumstance, he gives you the grace to persevere through it? What if the Holy Spirit actually is alive and working in you? What if? And what if God actually wants you to win? He's not the boogeyman hiding behind the bush, waiting for the first mistake and going, Ha, I got you! I don't know the got you God. I know a God who wants you to win more than you do. I know a God who's so invested in your victories that he gave himself and died to rescue you from slavery to sin and give his, pour his grace upon you 
so that you could represent him on this earth. I know a God who for some strange reason determined that the salvation of millions would be determined by we being obedient to his commands. He could have figured something different out, right? (laughs) And yet he said, how will they know if we don't go? What if this gospel message is true? And what if he wants you to be the tool in his hand to bring salvation and healing and deliverance to others? And so you start praying for somebody and they start manifesting, you know? You have no authority. You go, what if this is a demon? What if, what if this demon attacks me? What if, what if, what if, what if? Yeah, but what if God is true to his word? And what if I really do have power over demons? In the name of Jesus. What if they really do have to flee when I speak? Wouldn't that be extraordinary? Wouldn't it be amazing if it was actually true? Well, it is. And it's true for you. And too often we have this, we have this theology but it's not a theology. It's this abstract concept, but it doesn't hit home. It's a theology for everybody else, but not for me. It's a theology for the elders, but not for me. It's a theology for the really spiritual types, but not for me. What if... Ask yourself right now, what if? What if this is true? What if God is calling me? What if God really wants to use me? What if it's true that in Hebrews it says we are surrounded by all the old heroes of the faith as a cloud of witnesses looking at us and cheering us on as we run the race? What if? Actually, one day we will stand before him. Gaze into his eyes. And he looks at Jacques as Jacques stands before him one day. And the Lord of creation, the one who brought all things into being, looks him in the eyes and says, Jacques, well done, my boy. Well done, my good and faithful servant. What if we're all going to have that moment? Dare we believe it? Dare we ask the question? What if this is true? What does it really mean? What would my life look like if I really believed what's written on these pages? What would my marriage look like? What would my kids look like? And I'm not saying if your kids are rebels, it's all your fault. God is the perfect father and look at his kids. He's got some pretty rebellious kids, right? 
What would my worship look like? What would my giving look like? What would this world look like? What would this town, what would my family, what would my workplace look like if I really believed what was in these pages? What would my language look like? What would my relationships and my friendships look like? What would our meetings look like? Imagine. Imagine a Sunday meeting where all of us truly believe what's written in those pages. Or what if something goes wrong? What if I fail? What if I get it wrong? What if I go forward with a prophetic word and, and speak to one of the elders and the elders go, no, we're not releasing that. What if I dare, this morning, for the first time in about 15 years, I played bass in worship. Woo! Yeah, you wouldn't cheer if you were there. <laughs> Man, I'm rusty. Man, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I played some, what happened? What if I play some wrong notes? Who cares? I don't. What if I bring a prophetic song and I sing out of tune? What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you get up and walk out on me? <laughs> what if? And you go and get to the point, Mike. I'm at the point. This isn't a five-point preach. This is a one-point preach. What if? And the challenge tonight, I think from the Lord, what do those two words mean to you? Did they lead you into fear and darkness, anxiety, depression? Because what if can be past tense. What if I'd never done that? It can be future tense. What if that man walking through Israel He had options. He could look to the hills. And by looking to the hills, he's looking at what dangers are coming. What's coming around the corner. And his focus is on what's coming. His focus could be what's on ahead. If only I can get to my destination, I'll be safe. And many of us live lives like that and we never live because we postpone living to that event. And that event is then followed by another event. You know, especially young people. You know, when I'm when, when I'm a teenager, then everything will be fine. Then you're a teenager, you realize life sucks. So it's like, when I get my driver's license, then when I leave school, then when I graduate, then when I get married, then when I have kids, then when I get promoted, then when I retire, and eventually when, I de- when I'm dead, it'll be all right then. And we've not lived, because we've always lived in the, well, it'll be fine when I get that. And we miss today. We can be so focused on what's ahead. Or we can be focused on what's behind. The things you were. The things you did. And the power of the cross is they have no hold on you. You can look to the left and the right. You can look to the front. You can look to the back. You can look to yourself. Have you noticed people who say, I want to go find myself. They always go to some exotic locations. They never go to Benoni, do they? I'm traveling to Benoni and Springs to find myself. 
Don't go try to find yourself. Because if you do, you won't like what you see. Don't go looking for yourself. Go looking for Jesus. He's worth finding. But don't, your focus shouldn't be on yourself. And then sometimes our focus is on others. At least we're in a group. You know, and I've got a good friend, Phil, and he'll always get me out of a bind. He'll always get, he's always there for me. If I've got a problem, I can rely on Phil. Except, you know what? Phil, as amazing and reliable and as godly as he is, he's not God. He's not omnipotent. He's reliable, but he's limited. Sorry to bust your bubbles. I know you all thought. So I can look to people. And people are a great encouragement and they help me stay on the right road and they'll help me get to the destination. But my help ultimately doesn't come just from man. If I'm looking to man for my solution, guess what? I'm going to be disappointed. And that man might be your boss at work. He's my solution. If I can just get him on side or if I can just find a husband or a wife or if I can just have kids, a person is not going to be your salvation unless that person is Jesus. So you can look ahead, you can look behind, you can look to the left, you can look to the right, you can look inside, you can look around you, or you can look up. And focus on the one who knows the beginning from the end. You can look to the one who's all-powerful. And you can trust him because he is all-powerful and he knows the beginning from the end. So he can say, I know you don't see the purpose of what, I'm, what you're going through right now, but I do. And I've learned an important lesson in life. When I don't understand why, I fall back on looking at who. God, I don't know why this is happening, but I know who you are. God, I don't know why you've asked me to do this but I know who you are. And there's times I've stepped out and done ridiculously stupid things, thinking it was God and it wasn't, and I've crashed and burned. But then you know what? Sometimes I've stepped out to do ridiculous things, thinking it was God, and it was. I've seen miracles. I've seen signs and wonders. I've seen people saved. I've seen demons cast out. I've seen people healed. I've seen childless couples raise kids. Because I dared look up. What if? What if God is real? And what if what he says is true? And what if it applies to you? Whatever it applies to you. And it did once when you were some rasta cycling through Africa, smoking away, thinking you'd found God until God found you. And it's as applicable today as it was that moment you first met. Whatever. What if he's brought you this far because he's got so much more for you to walk into? What if? Who's crazy enough to believe with me? Who's crazy enough to say, yeah, God is real. His word is true. And it applies to me. Who's crazy enough to say my shame and my guilt were removed at the cross? 
who's crazy enough to say, God has a plan and a purpose for my life to bring him glory? Who's crazy enough to say, God can use me to preach the gospel and see people saved? Who's crazy enough to say, I can drive out demons? Who's crazy? (laughs) Can we be a people who take what Satan has intended for harm, that what if, and turn it around and make it God's what if? Instead of worrying about the future. Worrying about problems, worrying about money, worrying about clothes, worrying about health, worrying about death, worrying about the petrol price. Who, by worrying, can change one cent in the petrol price? Worrying about Ukraine and nuclear weapons. For those of us who've been around long enough, we've seen it all before. We'll see it all again. Is this the end times? I don't know. But I'm crazy enough to believe that God wants to work in my generation. And he wants to use you. I'm looking around and going, it must be God. (sighs) Not who I would have chosen. But God has chosen you. I want to ask if you're... This kind of thing where you almost feel compelled to. I don't want you to feel compelled. But if God is speaking to you tonight and you're going, I've got to get rid of the old what ifs and replace them with new ones. And I'm going to dare to believe God. Not in some abstract way, but some very real way. And some of you, as I'm speaking, there's very tangible things coming to mind. And your breakthrough might be physical healing if you're sick. Your breakthrough might be the grace to handle your sickness. For some of you are in financial difficulties, your breakthrough might be money in the bank. It might be the faith to live with no money in the bank. I don't know what your breakthrough looks like, but what if God is true to his word? If you're here tonight and you're going, I, that's how I want to live, with what if God is real? What if God is true? What if God actually comes through to me? If that's you, if you want to commit to living that life, Just stand where you are. God, we want to be a people who are crazy enough, mad enough to believe that what this book says is actually true. Lord, I just want to pray.